Good morning again. Let me just say my word of welcome to all of you all this morning. Let's go to the uh, Lord with a brief word of prayer uh, once again. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We pray that you would bless us in Jesus with uh, your spirit to hear from you and to have hearts to obey and to love what you have to say to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, have you noticed how consistency can cause you to think that a thing is casual, is normal? I'm a basketball fan, and usually I try to watch as much basketball as I can. If you are a basketball fan, you've realized over the last few weeks how phenomenal some of these individual performances have been. I mean, already this season, we've had two 70-point scorers. We've had multiple 60-point scorers, where for decades, those things were so spread apart, those kind of point totals, that they were rare. Now that they uh, come along more often, we can be tempted to think that they're normal. We can be tempted to yawn when we see another 70-point performance, another 60-point performance. Now, some of y'all are looking at me like, we don't care at all about basketball. That's cool. The, the point is, uh, things that seem to come along more consistently make us think as if those things are casual, not phenomenal. I say that because we can do the same thing with God's word. You see, we can come to church services Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we get kind of used to hearing the Bible preach. And we just figure, well, okay, some dude, me, going to stand up here for a long time and read text from the Bible and talk about it. And because that's normal, because it's so consistent, we can think that it's kind of casual. But I pray that even our time over the last few weeks have shown you the phenomenon it is when God speaks. That when the Lord of heaven talks, things happen. And so I don't ever want us to lose excitement, to never stop marveling at what God does when his word is proclaimed. Yes, it's consistent, but it's never casual. God can do phenomenal things through his word. And we're trusting that he would do the same this morning, even as we continue our study through Genesis chapter 2 this morning. And this morning we'll look at three verses, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and open up there? You can find it on conveniently page 2 of your Bibles. And if you looked ahead this week, read ahead, and figured with a short passage, surely this man is going to give us a shorter sermon. Well, you can pray as I preach and see what the Lord does. <laughs> Let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Short passage. Here's what I think is the, the main idea of this passage, the main point of the sermon. God is inviting us to join him and enjoy his rest. God is inviting us 
to join him and enjoy his rest. As we study this brief passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts on three points that I think we see pretty clearly in the text. I'm just pulling straight from the text this morning. Number one, God finishes. God finishes. Number two, God blesses. Oh, God rests. I'm sorry. God rests. And then number three, God blesses. Three points. Number one, God finishes. Number two, God rests. Number three, God blesses. First, God finishes. We see that pretty clearly in this text. Look with me at verse one again. We read, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. Then down to verse two, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. Verse one of of chapter two here clearly serves as a kind of inclusio, a kind of bookend to verse one of chapter one. In fact, I think we remember that originally the Bible was not broken up into chapter or verse divisions. We can understand the kind of natural flow that exists here. I mean, turn the page back to, to chapter one, verse one of Genesis, where we read that groundbreaking statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, if you flip back to chapter two, verse one, Moses picks back up with that language of the heavens and the earth, but God is no longer creating. No, now we read that thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts, all the elements, all the inhabitants of them. The previous verses in in between verse one of chapter one and verse one of chapter two have detailed all of God's wonderful works of creation, both forming and filling the earth that we've looked at from forming light and the sky, the earth and the seas, and then filling all those habitats, the sky with the sun, the moon, the stars and birds, the sea with all sea creatures and all kinds of fish, the land with crops and beasts of all kinds. And most importantly, as we looked at last week, filling the land with people, with image bearers. God capped off his creation with his, his crown creation, human beings made in his image to rule over all the earth under God's royal rule. Now, once man is made, nothing else needs to be made. God doesn't need to add any more garnishes to his dish, dish to make it look better. God doesn't need to rearrange any furniture or add an accent piece to the room. No, the picture that's painted before us in Genesis 1 to 2 so far is that the universe is perfect, just as God intended it. There was a design plan that's been perfectly executed. God's mission has been accomplished. I think it just shows us once again that God is not at one with his world. He's not intertwined with his world. Rather, God is separate from the world. He rules over it as its creator. God is not, as some theologians uh, like to say now, in process with the earth, right? Kind of moving along and being transformed along with the earth. No, God is distinct from his creation. He made the earth and he's completed it. It also just, again, grounds us in the assurance of God's power and God's purposes. I mean, not many of us look to creation for comfort, but perhaps we should do so more often because creation tells us that what God starts, he completes. 
according to his good purposes. Creation teaches us that we should trust God's plans. I mean, if, if, if we just stopped reading our Bibles, after the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1, we'd read that, that God made the heavens and the earth, but we'd wonder why. What would be good about it? I mean, if you leave off of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it tells us that the earth that God made was empty, was utterly dark, was submerged with water. It was a wasteland. And we might presume after the first two verses of Genesis 1 that it was a waste of God's time. But then we read that God starts creating on his created earth. On day one of the creation week, we read that God says, let there be light. And there was light. And we're still asking, okay, well, what's so important about that? Okay, now God has created a, a kind of well-lit wasteland. What's so good about that? Well, then we keep on reading. On day two, he creates the sky to separate waters from above from the waters below. And we're still not impressed. What's the use of that? Then on day three, we read that he, he separates the waters and, and creates the dry land. And that on that dry land, he, dry land he, he plants crops. And we get a little more interested because then we re realize that some of our favorite foods from watermelon to collard greens all come from the Lord's hands. All right. All right. All right? And we get a, a little more interested. And then on day four, we, we read that God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. The same sun we see on days that cheer our hearts. The sun we wish was out right now. That kind of that sun makes you feel a little better about the day, doesn't it? The, the same sun that, that warms us, the, the, the same sun that provides energy for us, the, the stars that, that we gaze at on a dark night and marvel us. And we realize that there's beauty and purpose in God's creation. And then on day five, as we keep reading, he fills the sky with birds and the sea with sea creatures. And then on day six, he fills the land with animals that we love to eat. And finally, we read he makes us in his image, in his own likeness. Us, with all our flaws, with all our imperfections, made in God's image. And you see that all the things that, that God had previously made were leading up to that point of day six. The crops were to feed humanity, and the earth was designed and cultivated perfectly for us to live on and to live off of. God had a purpose in everything. But you could not see it on day one or day two or day three, or day four, or day five, or day six. But at the end of day six, into day seven, as you survey the entire finished product, you think, oh my goodness. Look at the power and purposes of God. Everything makes sense. God had a perfect plan. But you can't see it in parts. And God doesn't necessarily show us his plan in parts. But we trust him that he will complete what he starts. And that what he starts, he has a perfect purpose and a completion in mind. I wonder how that might enrich and enthrall your faith. Because the Bible tells us elsewhere later on in the biblical text that what God begins, he completes as well. In the last book we studied together, the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church who was going through some trials and some conflicts had to remind them of this sweet assurance that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into your heart, has converted you and given you new life. He has a purpose for that new life. You, you might not see it on day one of you being a Christian. 
You might not see it on year one of you being a Christian. You might not see it after year 20 of God's design for you as a Christian. You might not see how the suffering of today and the trials of tomorrow and the setbacks of next week fit into the plan. Because he don't show you the whole plan in little pieces. But when you stand back at the end of your life, you will realize that what the Lord started, the Lord brings to completion. Look back at the creation accounts to confirm that in your heart. If you're here this morning and you're weary about where you are in your walk with the Lord. Just trust that if you keep on putting one foot in front of the other, going towards the Lord, he will work out his plan for you. Don't stop at day one. Don't stop at year one. Don't stop at year 20. Keep going. Trust that what God starts, he finishes for his good purposes. We see that in point number one, God finishes. He always does. Not only do we see that God finishes in this passage, we also see that God rests. God rests. Look with me again at the text. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. Verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Notice all the repetition we see in these verses. When biblical authors mean to make a point, when they mean to, to emphasize something, they don't have the luxury, as we do, of all caps, right? They don't have the luxury of highlight or bolding or italicizing. Rather, what they use, the tool that they use, is repetition. And so, little kids here in the congregation, one of the ways you can read and understand your Bibles better is when you read the Bible to circle all the repeated words, Right. And see if they trying to help you get the big idea of the passage. Adults, if you're kind of new to reading the Bible for yourself, you should take that Bible under your chair. If you don't have one, you can easily read. Take it home with you and mark it up. If You have a Bible of your own. Right. It is God's holy word. But you putting a pen or a highlighter in that holy word will not defile it. Right. It actually might help you understand it better. So even in, in this passage. If you circled all the repeated words that authors in the Bible often use to make a point, you'd circle seventh day. You'd circle finished. You'd circle work. You'd circle rest. All these key things that help us to understand what this passage is about. Three times in verses two and three, we hear the seventh day repeated, which is interesting. Because on all the other days of creation, the days of the, days of the week are, are, are not stated until the end of that day. And then only once on, on every other day. Action is what immediately meets us. We, we read as we start every other verse in this creation account, we read, and God said. And then the thing that God said comes to pass. And then we read at the conclusion of the events of that day, a concluding remark that it was evening and morning the first day or the second day. And so on. But 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 here there is no speaking of God to create anything. Rather, the day of the week is what leads the account on the seventh day. We said before that seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of perfection, which is fitting here because creation has been completed. And so we read what God did on the seventh day. God rested from all his work. 
which we see noted twice, once in verse 2 and then again at the end end of verse 3. It's interesting that, that God is presented as the first worker in the Bible. We might think that the grand activity of masterfully designing the universe would be labeled with more extraordinary terms, with the more flowery label. But God, by his spirit, moves Moses to label what God did and making the entire universe as work. It's a peek into the reality that work is good, that work is of God. We'll explore that a little more as we Continue on in chapter two as God gives Adam work to do. And, and, and notice all this, as Warner said earlier, is before you get to Genesis chapter three. It's before sin enters into the world. I think it just reminds us that work is not a consequence of the fall. You need to be reminded that when you go to work tomorrow, right? <laughs> work, <laughs> your boss might be a consequence of the fall. Your response to your boss might be a consequence of the fall. Work itself is not a consequence of the fall. Work is not some punishment enacted by God after Adam and Eve sinned. It's not because of our rebellion. No, work is not inherently evil, but good. God works. And so should we. And God rested from his work, we read, and by extension, so should we. But what does it mean that God rested. Uh, perhaps you're thinking that's a stupid question. I mean, we already know what it means to rest. It means to chill, to relax, to kick your feet up, or grab your favorite glass or something cold and sit on the couch all day long. Uh, but we need to slow down and ask the question here, lest we fall into the critical error that we often do as Christians of reading our experiences and our understandings of terms back into the Bible. There's not always a one-to-one correlation of the way we use and understand terms and the way the Bible uses and understand terms. Take, for instance, our understanding of fathers. Some of us only understand fatherhood through the lens of the painful experiences of our fathers, with our fathers, the, these experiences filled of, of neglect or abuse or harshness, sometimes lack of affection, lack of care, lack of trust. And so we might read those experiences into our understanding of the Bible's usage of God being our father, and we kind of buck against that. Uh, if you pay close attention, I don't think it makes a kind of direct statement, but notice when you're in Christian prayer gatherings, how seldom we call God our father. Lord, God. But why is it that that we find it hard to call God our father? Part of that. Think about that. It's interesting also that Jesus, when he teaches us how to pray, starts off by commanding us, call him your father. He loves and cares. Sometimes I think we read our experiences back into the Bible's experience. Or or, or think of another example. Think of the way we often use and understand the term love. It's often only tied to an affectionate feeling, you know, when your heart starts fluttering when she walked by. Right? When you first saw him so many years ago, that that, that feeling that you have, it, it has no requirements and love makes no demands in our world. 
But then when we read the Bible's portrayal of love as being committed, as being long-suffering, as being patient, as being forgiven, forgiving, as being sacrificial, as chiefly demonstrated by God so loving us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we read our experiences and see the Bible's experience of what it means to love, we see that our understanding of love is far deficient to the, to the Bibles. And so we need to ask questions when we come to texts like this that present terms and ideas that we think we know so commonly. We know what it is to rest, but do we? We need to ask, is what I mean by rest what the Bible means by rest? So again, what does it mean that God rested? And for us, the... the, the the concept conjures up images of God taking a nap. God putting his hotline to heaven on do not disturb for a few hours. God taking a mental day. Those are the kind of things we do to rest and so must God might be our thinking. But, but when we allow those ideas to bleed into the text, you know what we need to do? And let's be honest, we do those things. We allow our ideas of stuff bleed into the text. What we need to do to remedy that is to allow the text bleed out those ideas. Right? We need to, okay, understand we're filtering in stuff inside the text. We need to let the totality of the Bible's text then bleed our ideas out. All right, so for instance, right, we don't just read the text in front of us. We read the entire Bible to see what the entire Bible says to constrain our concepts of what it means for God to rest. And so Psalm chapter 121, verses 3 and 4, for instance, tell us that he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, the, the one who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. In other words, God don't take no naps. He doesn't need to. He's not a man that he tires from a heavy workload. He doesn't have eyelids that need closing. He has no body clock that needs to be reset. No, he's God. The God who never slumbers or sleeps, but he rests. But God's rest doesn't mean he sleeps. Okay, what does it mean then? Well, neither does God's rest mean that he is inactive. Taking a day off and declaring, I ain't doing nothing today. Right? Some of y'all might have that mindset when you leave church today. Don't know if nobody bug me after service. Well, then we allow the entire Bible to, to filter out our understanding. In John chapter 5, verse 17, when the religious leaders were rebuking Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day when you're not supposed to lift the finger and do any work, Jesus, the eternal son of God, right, from the father, from all eternity, says back to these religious leaders, my father is working until now. And I am working. Jesus states that God is always working, never taking a break. But how can that be true if Genesis 2, 2 and 3 talks about God resting? Well, because Genesis 2 speaks of God's rest, not as God sleeping and not as God as being idle. But, but look at verse 2 closely. It tells us that God rested from all his work that he had done. And then verse 3 kind of drills that down even more specifically, telling us in the latter half of that verse that God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
The rest here is God ceasing from his work of creating the world as we know it. He didn't rest because he was tired. Uh, Amazingly, it wasn't hard work for God to create the entire universe in six days. He simply spoke it and it came into being. His his voice didn't go hoarse. He didn't need a lozenger, right? It wasn't hard for him. Rather, he rested from creating to now rule over and to enjoy his creation, which is what God is doing even now. He's resting from creating. He's he's no longer creating, but he's not resting and being inactive. No, he's now ruling over and enjoying his creation. I mean, passages like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, tells us that the same God that we read about here in Genesis 1 who spoke the universe into existence Well, that same God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. To put it plainly, if God takes any kind of break for any amount of time, for one single millisecond, the entire universe collapses. But he's keeping it. He's keeping us moment by moment, meticulously by the word of his power for his good pleasure and by his good pleasure. God is not disengaged. Yes, he's transcended to the world, but he's not uninvolved in the world. And God is not like some deadbeat dad who created something, but then leaves what he's created off to, to figure things out on his own. And that's not what God's rest look like, looks like. It doesn't look like God retreating. No, God rested to enjoy the completion of the earth. An earth that he not only made for humans to dwell on, but that he made so that he would dwell on with the people that he created to dwell in it. As one commentator notes, God's rest was one of deep pleasure and satisfaction at the fruit of his labor. And he meant he intended to enjoy the fruit of his labor. God rested not because he needed to, but because he wanted to enter into a new relationship a covenant relationship with his creatures, not simply as creator, right? Constantly creating and all you know me as is creator. No, he wanted to enter into a new relationship with his creatures, that of sovereign king and caretaker and Lord. And so he rested from creating to rule over and rule with his creation. And he invites us now to enter into his rest, that's found only in a relationship with him. Amen. That brings us to our third and last point we see in this text, that God blesses. God blesses. Look with me again at verse 3. We read, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, if you're Alert, we've seen God blessed before in the creation week. Up in verse 22, we read that he he blesses the sea creatures and the birds of the air. After creating them, we read, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on earth. And then if you drop down to chapter 1, verse 26, after God blessing the sea creatures and the animals, God blesses people that he created in his image. In verse 28, we read, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish of the seas and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here in chapter 2, verse 3, God blesses again. But for the first time, God blesses an inanimate object, not a thing or a person, but a day. God blessed the seventh day. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that just as with his previous blessings, where there was God giving a blessing and then the blessing was to allow those creatures blessed to be fruitful. Well, just as in those previous blessings, God was bestowing upon this day vitality. He was bestowing upon this day a life-giving function. Just as when he blessed animals and people to be fruitful, so on this seventh day, fruitfulness was to be found forever. Now, why do I say forever? Because pay close attention to what's missing in verse 3. Any mention of this seventh day ever ending. As we mentioned before, on every previous day of creation, the formula has been to conclude the day with the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, sixth day, on, on through. But not so with this seventh day. When you read the Bible, you want to read closely, right? What's missing? Right? What's out of place here? This verse has no concluding ending. This day of God's rest doesn't have a concluding formula because unlike the previous six days, this seventh day does not end. It extends throughout all of history. We are living in the seventh day, a day of God's rest that he has invited us into and extended out to us. It's a day of fruitfulness and vitality as God enjoys us and as we enjoy God. As one theologian notes, this seventh day signifies the covenant fellowship that God enjoyed with Adam and Eve. I mean, you said some of that if you keep on reading Genesis chapter 2. Right? God kind of delighting and in, in being in the presence of his people. He's speaking to Adam. Right? He's giving him positive and negative commands so that he can live and, and, and have good communion and fellowship with him. He's walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's not until sin enters in, uh, into the world that that's strange for them. That they start running. No, th th there's, there's a kind of enjoyment a fellowship, a relationship that God has entered into with this creation that they are loving to live under. There's bliss, there's peace, there's joy, there's fruitfulness in relationship with God. They're resting in him. But you know how the story takes a drastic turn. When Adam, and by extension we, turn away from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, that perfect fellowship was broken. That restful relationship with God was lost. But amazingly, graciously, God set out to restore it. God took the initiative to restore that relationship and to restore us into that restful relationship. God would set out again to have for himself a people to be in relationship with him even after Adam and Eve ruined it. And so we read later in the biblical text how he rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He chose them to be his special treasured possession among all the other peoples of the, the earth. And he entered into a covenant relationship with them, promising to be their God and that they would be his people. And you know what was the sign 
of that covenant relationship with Israel, of this relationship? What did God give them as a sign? A day of rest. The literal seventh day of the week. A day set apart and made holy, just like this day, to honor him. It becomes the fourth commandment that God gave Israel. Remember the Sabbath day to, to keep it holy. And he further articulates that command in Exodus chapter 31. Now listen to Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. We read, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, have set you apart to be mine. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And notice how God grounds his command of the Sabbath observance for the people of Israel. He grounds that command in his day of rest after making the world. This Sabbath is not a command given to his people to burden them, but to bless them, to give them a physical day to intentionally rest from their works as God did and to rest in him. To look not to their own efforts to, to kind of white knuckle it until they are exhausted beyond repair, but to look to the Lord to provide for their needs, to rely on him. They were to keep the day holy to the Lord. Reflecting his holy character and his goodness to them. The day was to signify, was a sign of their relationship with the God of the universe who rested on the seventh day. But it was pointing to the full restoration of the relationship that was ruined by sin. It was pointing to the blessedness, the fruitfulness of being united with God and in his presence. That's why later in the Old Testament, this idea of rest it's tied not only to the Sabbath day for the people of Israel, but to the entrance of the people of Israel to the promised land. It's a rest that the people are to enter into, the Bible later says. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Moses speaks again of this rest in terms of the people of Israel not yet coming to rest and to the inheritance the Lord is giving you to live in the land the Lord God has provided for you. Now, why was there to be rest in the promised land? Because God's presence again was to be with his people. God would have his temple built right in the midst of the people of Israel where God would once again take up residence with his people, providing a restful relationship with them. And yet again, a generation of the people of Israel rebelled against God, just as Adam and Eve did. They doubted God's goodness and his power. 
And so as we read earlier in our call to worship in Psalm 95, God vowed in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But it was a later generation led by Joshua who did inherit the promised land. And listen to how the possession of the promised land is described in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 and 44. We read, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. But again, even this rest was short-lived because again, Israel, like Adam and Eve, again rebelled against God. And they were kicked out of the promised land, away from God's presence and away from the blessed rest found only in him. But again, amazingly and graciously, God was at work wooing his people back to him. God was at work, work restoring that restful relationship found only in him. This time, he did it not by calling a people to himself. He did it by sending himself to his people. This time, God personally came into the presence of his pe people in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, a world at war with God, a world in chaos to make peace with us, to grant us rest. The rest that the creator of the world intended to have with his creatures on this seventh day. And this time, God didn't call his people to find rest in a day like the Sabbath or in a place like a specific piece of land, but explicitly in him. And so pay attention. I want, just want you to get it. I know this has been a bunch of scriptures. Once you get the unfolding of this idea of rest, God rests on the seventh day. Then he calls his people Israel to, to rest on the Sabbath day. Then God calls his people to rest in the land where I will be. Right. And now he, he doesn't call them to a day to find rest. He doesn't call them to a place to find rest. He calls them to himself to find rest, which is why this very familiar passage that we hear often has even more significance than simply to comfort our weary hearts in the midst of trial. It, it is at least that. But it's even more than that when you see the significance as it's the kind of culmination of the unfolding of the idea of rest. When Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 11 tells all those around him, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The rest God always intended was never simply from physical labors. It was for spiritual restoration, for spiritual fruitfulness that's found in and God alone. He was meaning to give our souls rest. We needed it because all our souls are damned. However good we look on the outside, they, they are hiding the worst part of us. That's scary, isn't it? 
Because as you get older, you look in the mirror, you're like, the worst parts of me are definitely more and more on the outside now. The bags and the recession and the graying and the drooping, oh my gosh. Actually, that's the best part of you. <laughs> it's hiding the worst part of you. Your soul, apart from the Lord, is a mess. Your soul, apart from the Lord, is dark and hard and hateful. If someone poked into your heart, in my heart, uh, they would find out all those little thoughts that in polite company we never say, but we sure do think them. Oh, it's some ugliness inside. All our souls are dark. All our souls are burdened with sins. All our souls are damned eternally because of our rebellion against God. And so all of us naturally lacked any real peace, any real joy, any real rest until Jesus came to die in our place for our sins, every single one of them. And then not just take away our sins, but to take away that sinful soul of ours. Right. We, we sing the song sometimes. My sinful soul has been set free. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit to love him and to live for him. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave three days later so that all who turn from their sins and trust in him might be reconciled to God and have rest. Finally, for the first time in your soul. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I, I know what you are going through. It might life might seem really exhilarating or my, my life might seem really hard. Or somewhere in between that. But I can guarantee you what I know to be true is that when it's that super quiet moment in your life, when you allow the, the kind of quietness to, to kind of rush over you and, and pull away just briefly from the busyness of life, which we often never do because that's when it gets scary to be alone with God. When you get alone with your thoughts, I know there's no real peace. There's no real rest. And if you are honest, you know that as well. That's why you got to keep seeking to please people. Seeking compliments. Uh, seeking another vice. What is it about you that makes you do those things? It's the desire to finally find some rest. And you'll never find it that way. Because it's only found in the Lord. As one older theologian from the fourth century said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. There's a salvation rest that's found in God alone. I pray you know that this morning. I pray you know that this morning. Don't sit in here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday allowing it to wash over you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Run to him to find rest. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, reflecting his holy character and that of his holy son. The seventh day of creation then is not tied to one particular day of the week, but to the final rest that believers enjoy in Christ. Now, what does that all mean for us? It doesn't mean that we have to take one day a week and rest. Well, that's not commanded of us explicitly. We Christians do not need to keep the Sabbath in the way that Israel did. The Sabbath was a covenant sign for them. Uh, 
we're not the people of Israel. And we don't live under the old covenant. That's not something you want to go back to. Right? You know how the Bible speaks of the old covenant? As being under bondage. As being in slavery. Right? If you are tempted to love and look to live under the, the kind of laws of the Old Testament, look at how Paul talks about that in Galatians. This afternoon, read all six chapters of Galatians and see how Paul talks about the law. It's, a, it's leading you to Christ. Right? You don't come to Christ to go back to the law. No, no, we're not the people of the people of Israel. We don't live under the old covenant. We live under what Hebrews says is a new and better covenant. The new covenant initiated by the blood of Jesus Christ that's washed away all our sins. And so what we have then is, is a pattern. Instead of a prohibition not to work on a certain day, what we have is a pattern initiated by God to rest from labor. And what we have is a promise of rest for our souls in Christ and a premise to consent, continue to, to seek out fellowship with the Lord so that we might have ongoing rest. Quite practically then, while we're not commanded to, to rest one day of the week, right, as a pattern and, and as we see what God has done for us, we should rest from our labors. Again, not in observance of the Sabbath, but in keeping with what Israel was supposed to do on the Sabbath to trust in God's provision. Many of us, perhaps me especially, need to hear and heed the words of Psalm 127, verse 2, that it is vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That need to be my life verse, really. Physical sleep Rest is a gift from God. We don't need to anxiously work and toil endlessly to provide for ourselves. But think about this. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up, provided him up that we might have everlasting rest for our souls, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Things we need to survive. So that we need not fear or fret. Things like physical sleep, things like rest as a sign of our reliance on him. If rest is found ultimately in the Lord, we also need to keep his commands. Because Jesus is our Lord. Including the command to not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. You know, God has designed one day out of the week at least to gather with God's people so that we might be refreshed so that we might rest in the Lord better. You notice how Hebrews 10 gives that command not to neglect meeting together, but how it's tied to your spiritual benefit, right? The meeting together is to help you love one another. The meeting together is to help encourage you in the Lord, right? The meeting together is to help you to keep resting in the Lord after a hard week and in lieu of the hard week to come. (laughs) The Lord knows how hard your day is going to be And so he said, let me give these jokers at least one day to get together. And when you neglect that one day, right, you're acting like you need to go it alone. Don't do that. It's a gift from God. Fellowship with Jesus is deepened by fellowshipping with Jesus' people. God gives us rest. And if rest is found ultimately in Jesus, then we would constantly be putting sin to death in our lives. Because we know that sin 
that was the ultimate cause of our rest with God initially being broken. It is sin that ruptured the restful, peaceful relationship between God and the first humans. And so if we know we have rest in the Lord now, why would we keep on sinning deliberately? We know where sin leads. Back to chaos. Back to anxiety. And even more, to death. But God has called us to life. To a fruitful life found in him alone. To rest in him alone. And so that's why the scriptures remind us, as Delano read for us earlier, that we need to not just sit in our resting, but strangely enough, we need to work in our resting. We need to work hard to keep resting in the Lord. And so notice how Hebrews chapter 4 that Delano read for us talks about their remaining, even for believers, a Sabbath rest to come for the people of God. For the the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.10, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But then listen to this action statement in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that Israel did. Brothers and sisters, there is real rest right now in Christ. But we got to strive. We got to keep going. We got to keep working to rest in God, not for our our salvation. We need to keep working out our salvation until the Lord calls us home. Again, for those who don't know the Lord, the command needs to be ringing in your ears right now that you need to respond to. Today, do not harden your hearts. You need the true rest, the true peace that God alone brings in Christ. He's come to make you his own. He's died for your sins. He's risen from the grave. He's extended to you life and peace and joy. Turn from your sins and trust in him. God is inviting all of us to find peace, to find hope, to find life, to find fruitfulness, to find rest in him. God is inviting us to join him. And enjoy his rest. And brothers and sisters, let us all RSVP immediately to God's invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We praise you (laughs) that you have loved sinners like us. That even as we keep pushing you away, you keep pulling us in and saying, enter into my rest. Give us rest in Christ, Lord. Let our hearts not be troubled or anxious. Help us to rest in him. For those whose hearts are troubled and anxious and unbelief even, conquer every unbelieving thought. Conquer every rebel thought and draw them to you. That we all, Lord, might have true peace, true joy, true happiness in Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.